I hope you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep tonight, or this, this past night, unless you have children, in which case I hope you're working through bitterness in your heart in a Christian way. In about 15 minutes, we'll probably have a few folks walk in who think they're here for second service, so don't judge them or shame them. Um, just think of them as being early for second service. So if you've got your Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 14, and we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, beginning in, in verse 15 today. And I don't know if you've heard of this, but there is a kind of song that is affectionately referred to as an earworm. Have you heard of this? And an earworm, an earworm is not a song that you necessarily um, enjoy. It's not necessarily beautiful or moving, but it is, like, in, in its most fundamental essence, just catchy. I mean, it just gets, it gets, it worms its way into, into your head. And maybe one of the most famous earworms was a song in 1993 by the Trinidadian German Eurodance artist. I know that's how many of you think of yourselves. The Trinidadian German Eurodance artist Hadaway. And in 1993, he released a song that swept the European and American dance scene. And I feel like as a spiritual moment, we should all take a moment to, to hear this earworm. And so if, you, if you've got it back there, let's play that. False start. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And if your head starts doing this, I know you watch Saturday Night Live. So later today, when you're at Rip Crib, and you see the Methodists, and they ask you what the sermon was about, you can tell them, right? That's good. That's enough. I think that's as much, uh, that's as much sacredness as we can handle. In 1998, the American comedy film, A Night at the Roxbury, was based on a recurring sketch of television's long-running Saturday Night Live uh, sketch called The Roxbury Guys. And the film expanded on this, this Saturday Night Live sketch where The Roxbury Guys... Uh, played by Will Ferrell and Chris Catan, uh, basically went around and just sort of nodded their heads to this song and repeatedly were rejected by women. And that's, uh, that's basically the, the entirety of the sketch. But the one part of the song, I mean, the song has really deep lyrics like, whoa, and most notably, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And that now it's perpetually stuck in, in your head, too. And that is a frivolous sketch. It really doesn't have any sort of sustaining transcendental value or ethical, you know, teachings or anything like that. But in one sense, I think the most pressing question in our culture is that. What is love? Like, what is it really? Because if you went out on the street and you talked to an atheist, you talked to a Christian, you talked to a Jew, you talked to a humanist, an agnostic, somebody who is just a, a totally unchurched person, the chances are very good that they would agree with the Apostle Paul when he says that love is the greatest, the highest, the noblest virtue. Like everybody, regardless of religion, regardless of worldview, Almost everybody in our culture agrees that love is a good thing. 
There aren't too many people out there, you know, advocating for anti-love positions, anti-love worldviews. But the crucial question is not whether or not love is, is a good thing or a noble thing, but rather, what is it? And where we differ in big, big ways is over what love looks like. And so if you ask different people to fill in that blank, either verbally or just like in their own thought process, for, for some of us, love has been defined as an emotion. Love is a feeling. It's that feeling of electricity. It's the spark that you felt the first time that you kissed your first love or you held their hand or you even like walked near them. Love is a, is a spark or a feeling. For some people, love is unconditional acceptance. There's even this sort of meme that if you can't love me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. So love is unconditional acceptance for some people. For some people, love is defined as tolerance, the ability to tolerate people of different backgrounds and worldviews and positions. And I, for one, think that tolerance can be a really good thing. Like, I'm really in favor of the fact that Christians are no longer murdering each other over different views of baptism, right? I think that's a good thing. But if we define love exclusively as tolerance, and in some cases, if tolerance is defined as complete endorsement, right? You have to agree with everything that someone says or does, then that's a, a corruption of the definition of love. For some people, love is basically blunt truth-telling, taking a stand. And they say, that's, that's how I'm loving. And for other people, they would say, well, yeah, but you're also being a Jesus jerk. <laughs> and love is not reducible to blunt, clanging gong, truth-telling. Love gets corrupted and, and perverted. For some of us at certain points, and for many people, that love is defined as uh, sexual closeness, that if you love me, you would do this. Love becomes all about manipulation. It becomes about attention. For some of us, it becomes a form of, of possession. Love even becomes a weapon. It's, it's weaponized. In the, in the famous Stephen King novel that got made into the famous movie, The Green Mile, uh, the big main character, Michael Clark Duncan, he has this famous scene where he says, all over the world, I see it, bad people are killing other people, they're harming other people, they're, they're, they're killing them with their love. And what he means is that we use love as a weapon to manipulate and to harm people. It becomes a tool. For, for some of us, we get burned, and so we just say, love is, it's a myth. It, it doesn't exist. It's this sort of fairy tale idea. And so while everybody agrees that love is a good thing, where we differ is, what exactly does it look like? What is love? And so what we're going to do in John 14 today is allow Jesus um, to teach us about that question. What is love according to Jesus? And he's not going to give us, I don't think he's trying to give us a, a full or complete sort of dictionary definition of love and all of its many faceted complexity, but he does want to talk about what love looks like. And so if you've got your Bible, John 14, beginning in verse 15, and we'll read this together. 
Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he, li- he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live and you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to sell yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while, I, while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. This is God's Word. This is a big passage, and there's a lot in the passage that we can't sort of delve into in in minute detail But maybe the first thing that we should say, and it comes up over and over again in the passage, is if the question is, what is love, or what does love look like according to Jesus, I think the first thing we could say is that according to Jesus, the mark of love is not feeling, but fidelity. According to Jesus, the mark of love is not feeling, it's not an emotion, but fidelity. And he says this over and over again in just slightly different ways. In verse 15, he opens, he says, if you love me, keep my commands. Then in verse 21, he says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. In verse 23, he says basically the same thing. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And then in verse 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. According to Jesus, the mark of love, the evidence of love, when it goes public, when it's it's actually present, is not feeling, but fidelity. This faithfulness, this obedience, this um, living out of his commands, not 
perfectly as if you are Jesus or as if you are a God, but in a genuine way, the mark of love in the life of Jesus' followers is fidelity. It's, it's obedience. It's not mere emotion or, or feeling. And I think for some of us, that's counterintuitive. It's certainly counterintuitive for our culture because whether we know it or not, maybe it's the Disney movies, maybe it's the fairy tales, maybe it's any number of things. I think we have been taught from a young age that love is an emotion, that it's, a, it's almost like a kind of fairy tale emotion. We talk about falling in love and falling out of love, and we're, we're taught that it's this, this sensation, this spark, this electricity, and, and so this, this creates some challenges for us when you, when you have this sort of fairy tale notion. And um, one of my daughters, I can tell this story because she's not in this service. We just got her a Bible. We got her a pink Bible, and it's a real Bible. It's not a storybook picture Bible. It's the whole Bible in a translation that she can understand. And I walk into her room a while back, and sure enough, she's reading her Bible. And I have this proud moment. And I'm like, what you doing? And she says, I'm reading my Bible. And then I say, well, what you reading? And I had told her, maybe start with like Matthew, maybe John, you know, maybe start with Jesus. But no, like every single Christian ever, she starts right at the beginning in Genesis. And she's just plowing through. She's like a little me. She's like a little attorney. And she just is devouring. And she says, I'm reading about a girl named Dinah. I think she's going to get married. <laughs> And if you know the story of Dinah, <laughs> it is not seven-year-old appropriate. <laughs> we won't give all of the details. There's a sexual assault. There's a forced marriage. There is a uh, slaughter of an entire clan of people by Dinah's angry brothers. And I'm like, oh, bah, 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 bah. Um, here's some Harry Potter. You know, I just like, how can we get you to not read the rest of that story? because she's launched into this terribly violent, complex, messy, muddy, dark story, and she thinks it's like Cinderella, or she thinks it's a fairy tale, and it's not, and it's not. And I did manage to like shift the conversation miraculously away from that, and she's now reading in the New Testament, but um, I think for some of us, we've had that experience, like not necessarily reading the Bible, but in life. There is this fairy tale conception of what love is. And then as we journey through life, we realize that the reality is much messier. It involves much more conflict. And it's, it's not something that can be distilled to a sort of uh, emotion or, or something like that. Our problem, one of our problems, is that we've been taught from a young age that love is a, is a kind of fairy tale emotion. This, this affects us in lots of ways, uh, but it also affects us uh, in a big way when it comes time to, to marry, when it comes time to live in a relationship. And I've talked about this article before, but one of the most formative uh, articles for me on this topic is by Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller. And he writes an article in Relevant Magazine called, You Never Marry the Right Person. And you can find it there. You can Google it or find it in Relevant Magazine. And he says, in generations past, there was far less talk about what we call now compatibility and, and finding the ideal soulmate. 
He says, today we're looking for somebody who accepts us as we are and fulfills our desires, and this creates an unrealistic set of expectations for, for what love is, and it frustrates both the, the searchers and the searched for. And he cites this, this story, of this article by John Tierney. It's a humor article called Picky, Picky, Picky. And he cites all of the reasons that people, serious reasons that people gave him for why they ended um, their relationship with the person that they um, wanted to, to pursue. One of them was, she mispronounced Goethe, the German author, which I don't know if that's right, so maybe I'm out already. Um, Goethe, it looks like Goth, but it's not. The other one, how could I take him seriously after seeing The Road Less Traveled on his bookshelf, question mark. Next one, if she would just lose seven pounds. Seven, exactly. It's a very specific number. That seems odd. Well, it started out great, beautiful face, nice smile. Everything was going fine until she turned around and he paused ominously and shook his head. She had dirty elbows. <laughs> Uh, sure, he's a partner, but it's not a big law firm, and he wears those short black socks. That's the end. These are all, all real reasons for, for ending a relationship. And he quotes this, this quote I've quoted before from an ethicist, a, a pastor, um, teacher, Stanley Hauerwas, and he says this about our view of love today. He says, the assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry, and that if we look closely enough, we will find the right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect to marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. Now, wait for his explanation of what he means. We never know whom we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing that it is, means we are not the same person after we have entered it. The primary challenge of marriage is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. He says there is this, this problem with our definition of love that it's this sort of fairy tale emotion-driven definition. And Jesus says, the mark of love is not a feeling, but fidelity. Not just in your marriage, that's, that's one aspect of life, but Jesus is talking about in your spiritual walk. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. And just as we buy into the, the love myth when it comes to romantic relationships, we buy into it with our faith. Jesus says the mark of love is obedience. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German pastor who, who, who you know, was martyred uh, by Adolf Hitler at the end of the Nazi regime, he writes in his book, um, Discipleship, or The Cost of Discipleship, its English title, he says, only he who believes is obedient and only he who is obedient believes. Jesus says elsewhere, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? 
The mark of love is not a feeling, but fidelity. Fidelity. And so maybe the first sort of dangerous question or application for you to think about and take home this week is this. Where have I made peace with my disobedience? Where in my life have I made peace with disobedience so that I'm no longer struggling against it? I'm no longer wrestling it. I'm no longer um, bringing it to God and asking Him to help me to overcome it. Where have I made peace with infidelity in my relationship with Christ or in my relationships with others? Is it Maybe it's gossip. Maybe we reframe gossip as prayer requests. Um, maybe it's a form of sexual sin. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's porn. Maybe it's an emotional affair or an overt act of adultery. Maybe it's in relation to, to greed or in relation to giving. Um, maybe it's in how you look at the poor, the foreigner. Maybe it's a matter of laziness that you've excused as um, avoiding legalism or, or something like that. But the first question is, since the mark of love is not a feeling but fidelity, where have I made peace with disobedience? Where in my life have I made peace with that disobedience instead of allowing Christ to, to change it? That's the first observation. Some of you probably rightfully are saying like, man, he's like coming out of the gate really hot this week. <laughs> Obedience, fidelity, all right, you know. And, and so we need to be really honest at this point. Jesus is crystal clear, if you love me, keep my commands. That the mark of love is not a feeling, it's fidelity. But there's a danger in a message like this. There is a real danger, and it's the danger of moralism, the danger of legalism. And the temptation, and this is my second observation, the temptation in this message and in our lives is to try to engineer fidelity through shame. That's the danger of this message. We say over and over, the mark of love is fidelity, not feeling. We need to obey. Only he who believes obeys and vice versa. And so the danger in a message like this that is so clearly about obedience, as John 14 is, is that we would try to engineer fidelity through shame. And there's a, there's a progression here as Christians and as parents, as Christians, parents, coaches, leaders, spouses, bosses. We know that fidelity matters. Um, we know that. And we get frustrated when it's not there, when it's not present in a child or a spouse or an employee or even in ourselves. And so as parents or teachers or bosses or whatever, we reach for the most powerful tool in our manipulative, obedience-generating toolkit, and it's the tool of shame. And we attempt to sort of shame people into fidelity or to shame them into obedience, and, and that always, always backfires. And so the temptation in this message is for me to try to do that to you, to engineer obedience or fidelity through shame. And I know Rod has talked about this, um, this lady before, and I've talked about her before. Uh, Brene Brown is a well-known researcher 
um, on shame and vulnerability. And many of you have probably seen her, her TED Talks, and, and she has one on, on shame and the power of shame. And without a question, there are actions that are shameful. There are things that are, that are deeply wrong. But in her definition of shame, she differentiates between guilt, which is feeling bad for what I've done, I have done wrong, and, and shame, which is saying something very different. It's saying that I am wrong. I'm worthless. And while guilt can have a good function, it drives us to repentance, what shame does is it's the kind of kryptonite of transformation. It clings to us like, like the stench of death, and it keeps us from actually pursuing wholeness and obedience and, and fidelity. It's the difference between I've done wrong and I am wrong. It's the sense that I'm worthless, I'm hopeless. She says, shame is the gremlin that says, you're not good enough. And I can say as a parent with just full honesty, there are times where I'm just so like frustrated and I want to engineer obedience, right? I just want to make it happen. And I will reach for any tool in the toolkit to engineer fidelity or obedience or just make them be quiet, right? And the tool that is reached for is, whether I know it or not, shame, that actually serves to sort of break the spirit of a child or an employee or a spouse. And even though the motive is to engineer fidelity, what it ends up doing is prohibiting transformation from actually happening. Because this sense of I'm worthless and I'll never measure up, I'm exactly, you're exactly like your father, right? These, these attacks against our very being keep fidelity from happening. And so the good news in this passage is very simple. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't engineer fidelity by telling you that you are worthless, that you're hopeless, that you're less than in an attempt to make you be good. Jesus doesn't engineer fidelity through shame. He doesn't do that. And so the key is to notice the next line in the passage after he gives us this really difficult truth that the mark of love is fidelity, not feeling. Notice that the next line. And so if we go back to verse 15 where we started, if you love me, keep my commands. That's the part we've talked about already. And then he says this, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And sometimes this last line where he says, I will not leave you as orphans, we take that as Jesus prophesying about his second coming at the end of history that Christ will return and he will not leave us as orphans. But almost all John scholars say that's not what he's talking about. 
It doesn't fit the context at all. When he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you, he's talking about how he comes to us through his spirit, the spirit of Christ, the spirit that he's been talking about as the advocate, the helper, the one that dwells within us, as Anthony Thistleton calls the Holy Spirit, the, the beyond within, the powerful, purifying presence of God that, that dwells in us. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will give you a helper, the Spirit. And so we could say this, the last point, true obedience, true obedience flows from an inner peace, an inner engine, an inner prompt, an inner love, an inner sense of belonging that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the engine of fidelity and transformation. And when Jesus wants to push us towards change and obedience, obeying his commands, he doesn't shame us into oblivion and nothingness and worthlessness. He sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. True obedience flows from this inner peace, this inner engine of love and acceptance that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' answer to imperfect obedience isn't to pour on shame, but to pour out the Holy Spirit. And we see this in the passage as well. Verse 25 says this, all this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus describes the presence of the Spirit that produces the fruit of the Spirit, obedience, fidelity, as, as peace. Peace I leave with you. Not, peace is not the same as sort of untroubled happiness, um, but it is this deep sense of belonging, this deep sense of love and acceptance that is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's the engine, the engine of fidelity. I started with a song, a silly song, um, by the, the, the Saturday Night Live special, you know, What is Love? I want to end with a, a more serious song. And um, I have a picture of a guy named John Moreland. He's one of my favorite songwriters, and uh, he grew up in Oklahoma. I think he's like Oklahoma's greatest living songwriter. And he's, he's played in Bartlesville several times, um, and now he's all over The Tonight Show and all these faint, you know, he's on the cover of GQ and on the cover of Rolling Stone, and he's from just right down the road, and he grew up in a very conservative, almost fundamentalist Christian setting and, and uh, had a huge falling out with, with faith and with God, and all of his songs, there's just this seething pain, and a lot of it has to do with, with faith, with God, with spirituality, and they're gritty. They're not, this is not like CCM Christian music folk songs. Um, but he has this song, and the title of the song is Love is Not an Answer. 
And it, the reason it like resonates with me, I think, is because I'm a dude who likes to fix things. And like over and over again, I can t- testify to moments where like, let's say my wife or some, maybe she's struggling with something and she's upset about something. And what's our first move? To step in. Well, here's the answer. Like, let's just think rationally about this, right? Let's, let's, here's the answer, right? And in so many words, like maybe she wouldn't say it like this, but his saying, listen, listen. Love is not an answer. That's not what love is. It's not just this didactic, well, here's what you need to do, right? That's not what love is. He says, there's this truth I need to trust, but I can't remember how. It's stuck there in the stillness. But the noise is too loud. Bring me all your questions. Bring me all your doubts, but don't let me meet the devil. And I sang those songs about Because the hounds of youth are howling, and you're all I've got to trust with heaven's lonely ghetto up there crying down on us. And the chorus, I don't know if I can sing it with my chorus. Love is not an answer. Oh, I don't need an answer. Love is not an answer. I need you. He's probably singing to some girl. But from my vantage point, he's singing to God. Jesus says, the mark of love is fidelity. And the way that's going to happen is I'm going to sin the answer. Not a text, not a command, not a verbal beatdown or shaming, but the Holy Spirit. His love is not that other kind of answer. Right? It's the only answer that can really help. It's, it's, it's love itself. Love is not an answer. Love is you. John, 1 John 4, verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And He sent His only son to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. God is love. And so the perfect way to end this message is to taste love. To commune with God through the breaking of bread um, and through the cup. And to experience his Love poured out through the cross. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for sin. And so today we're going to share in communion as we, as we sing together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way also he took the cup and he said that this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, blood poured out for you. And so we take and we reflect on that sacrifice. We don't come in fear or in shame, but in in joy that he loved us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've shown us what love is. 
And it's not a, a feeling. It's not just an emotion, but an act of fidelity. And so I pray that you would move us toward obedience, just as Christ proclaim that those who love me will keep my commands. Lord, we thank you that the way you move us toward fidelity is not through shaming, shaming us into worthlessness, but by sending the helper, the Holy Spirit, the advocate to live within us, the inner engine of acceptance and, and obedience. Lord, we thank you that, as 2 Timothy says, when we are faithless, you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself the self that lives within us through the Spirit. And so as we take and receive communion today, I pray that we would know that we are loved, and that that love poured out into our hearts by the Spirit would move us toward obedience. Maybe just in one single, simple area, Lord, that we would leave this place moved toward obedience. Maybe in, in our marriage, in our language, in our way of interacting with our kids or our coworkers, that you would move us towards transformation through your spirit through the example of love that Christ gave us. It's in his name we pray.